Hello friends, and welcome to The Final Threshold, a voice of those crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and to make His pathway straight. Here at The Final Threshold, we proclaim the true message of the kingdom in preparation for Messiah's second coming events. My name is Chadwick Harvey, and I welcome you. Friends, today we have a very special guest and friend of mine, Christopher Anderson, who is the author of Haunting of America, a demonologist's take on American spirits. As we witness America sink deeper and deeper into apostasy and lawlessness, are there ancient spirits that have affected our land and our nation? We will be diving into this and discussing a variety of points on this profound topic, so sit back and enjoy my conversation with Christopher Anderson. How are you doing today? Doing good, brother. How are you? I am doing great, and I really appreciate you joining us on such an important topic, and uh, I know that this is near and dear to your heart as well uh, with your book, Haunting of America. And just like I spoke in the introduction, I believe this is a very important topic uh, for all of the believers to understand as we uh, look upon America to see what what we're witnessing in America. There is a backbone to it uh, that you get involved in with your book, and uh, we'd like to just go from the beginning of uh, introducing yourself and your background uh, with this topic and also the genesis of the book of what prompted you to write it. All right. Well, my name is Christopher Anderson. Uh, I've been studying the topic of demonology for well over a decade now. Uh, Back in 2007, uh, the Lord called me into ministry. So I've been ministering the gospel since 2007. And then it was, uh, I believe it was 2010, 2011, I really started diving into what is demonology and studying it. Uh, My studies began with Paranormal Investigation Group out of Cary, North Carolina, called North American Demonic Paranormal. And I studied under David Scott as a team leader there and uh, became a demonologist. Um, That was near the time when I was in the military. Uh, After I got out of the military and moved to Ohio, I continued to study uh, into the topic of demons. Uh, Really, I studied it because I wanted to learn as many avenues as I could on how to confront them, how to identify a presence of a demon, how to confront specific demonic spirits, how to cast them out or get rid of them with the objective of spreading the gospel. You know, we read in the book of Mark that these signs will follow those who believe in the 16th chapter of Mark. And part of those, they'll cast out spirits. And, And what these things are, healing, deliverance, miracles, signs and wonders, they are a tool for witnessing and ministering the gospel of Yeshua HaMashiach to this lost and dying world. Um, so I've been doing that ever since. And uh, like I mentioned to you before, really don't go around talking about how I'm a demonologist or, or much. Uh, very often. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, I thought it would be really great for the book title uh, to really share that. Um, and I talked about it in the book how a lot of people say they're demonologists they're studying this stuff from an occult perspective, and it's it's not not healthy. It's not good. And the uh, reason I kind of don't tell people that very much about myself and this study is because it's close connotation with occultism and all that. Um, so I guess you would classify me more as a religious demonologist uh, in that aspect. Right. Well, it's such an important topic. And for the listeners, uh, this is in the scriptures, you know, Messiah himself. Uh, casted out demons as we read in the gospel. So this is very real. This is a spiritual warfare that we're in. Look upon America, Chris, and uh, which you, which I've read your book, and I thought it was outstanding. Like I've told you in private, uh, I, I got a lot out of it and a lot of information that I can use for my personal. Uh, when I'm praying for America, but could you lay the foundation of uh, the book and why you wrote the? book? upon America and you're seeing these things affect us uh, in a, in the spiritual realm. Uh, could you go into that for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're living in a time today where we're seeing so much going on within the social construct of society, re- regardless of whether you're in Europe, whether you're in the United States, South America, uh, Asia, Middle East, wherever, everybody's experiencing this cultural and social upheaval, and it's being reflected in the political world as well. I think of what's missing very much, the key piece to it, is the body of Christ 
rising up and seeing and understanding the spiritual realities that are contributing to the social upheaval, which is contributing to the political upheaval in this world. And something that I've, God has put on my heart so long ago, even in my second book, Awaken Arise, I talk about it, is that the church needs to awaken to the realities of what's around us. You know, we get so wrapped up in Western Christianity with teaching this pseudo psychological gospel that's meant just to make us feel good, but really doesn't do much for us spiritually. It teaches us, you know, how to believe God for these wonderful things, you know, the prosperity gospel, for example. It teaches us to, you know, see grace and 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 apply grace in our life but it's really not teaching us to go out and win disciples for christ and uh, i think as a part of that there's a spiritual dimension taking place that the church itself is being blinded by demonic forces uh, even within the body of christ that's manifested in various doctrines of demons that i talk about and uh, as a result the societies uh, where the churches are present are falling even more into depravity. And as a result of that, our elected officials who tend to cater to society and the masses are catering more to sinful desires. So I really think that what we're seeing is a lack of Christians, men and women of God today, understanding the reality of the supernatural warfare that is taking a place around us on a daily basis. Uh, so I wrote the book really to try to expose certain areas of demonic influence in the three pillars of society being the religious pillar being social pillar being political pillar pillar and um in attempt to get people to wake up i mean COVID 19 has done so much to to cause fear in the population but the bible says that god hasn't given us a spirit of fear but of power love and a sound mind so where is the church in this atmosphere of fear with a sound mind, with with love, Where, where's the church represented and all that? And, and again, so I see the missing ingredient is even the, the basic spiritual realities of the word of God manifested in the church, just missing. Um, so that's kind of the, the genesis towards this book. Well, I couldn't agree more with you with this, but just because uh, I do believe the church has suppressed uh, some of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we've uh, not been open to the understanding uh, of the spiritual realm of how we're supposed to engage with that, uh, with our gifts, which are supernatural gifts, and engage with it, intercede with it. And the, all of these three areas, they do work together, as you know. And I do believe we've grieved uh, the Holy Spirit to a certain degree. The church has because because we have not engaged and we have allowed uh, these things to be opened up. Like you said, even in the churches, you're seeing some of these spirits uh, manifest, so to speak. So I do believe I agree with you uh, with the coronavirus as a, a great example. I believe the Lord has allowed and used this uh, coronavirus to hopefully wake up the church to engage uh, in the spiritual warfare that we're in right now, the spiritual ram that we're in between good and evil, especially for America's soul, as we will get into. Uh, so I want to get into now more of the uh, some of the chapters of the book and some of the titles and some of the message that you have in those uh, with the morality and the immorality uh, with it being a free choice. I know most believe that we do have a free choice, but could you go into uh, some in the summary of that chapter of why you wrote it? Sure. So that's one of the first chapters there. And really, we have to, to lay a groundwork, a foundation for people to understand how and why demons operate, how and why even angels operate. So demons feast upon sins of man. So having an understanding of what is morally right and what is morally wrong is imperative. You see, if we don't have a foundational idea or understanding of morality, then we won't know what is sinful and what is not sinful. See, the Ten Commandments were written as a guideline to teach people morality, how to interact with God and how to interact with each other. And the Western culture we live in here in the States has a foundation, our Judeo-Christian value system founded in the Ten Commandments to teach us what is right and what is wrong. But we live today in a world where morality is fluid with the radical left-wing agenda. If you, if you want to get into that at all, um, morality is subjective sure. to the individual and what feels good to them. But that's not the case. That's not true. Without 
without a foundation of absolute morality, which we in the United States or anywhere in the world call a, a law, a system of law, right and wrong, punishment and reward, without that established, then we could have no basis of what is truly right and wrong. Now, as Christians, we have the word of God, and we know that the foundation of our judicial system, the, the legal system laws were based on the Judeo-Christian value system, then we can see that sin would be murdering somebody physically. Yeshua takes it even further and says, if you hate someone, you've, you've committed murder. Yeshua says, if you look after another woman to lust after, you've committed adultery with your inner heart. So Yeshua to it takes you know, the outward sin and makes it even inward. Why? Because we're a triune being. We're, we're body, soul, and spirit. And so dealing with spiritual realities, our sin that is produced in the soul or the mind of a person and reflected and, and acted upon in the body produces a fruit that demons are attracted to. It's fruit of sin. The Bible also talks about fruits of the spirit. So doing things that are righteous, you know, loving people, that produces fruit as well, fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what spirits are we attracting with the fruits of our lives? And so I wanted to write that chapter to define those things to help the reader understand morality and immorality and how they're defined both in a secular term and a scriptural term, a faith-based term, and to see and to, to be able to evaluate their lives, to see what fruits their lives are producing and what spirits are being drawn to the fruits of a person's life. So in this chapter, with the morality and the immorality, it being a free choice, am I correct saying that this is where it would begin to have the uh, the demon uh, possession, if you will, or the attacks of the demonic ram uh, by our choices, by our fruit that are is not good? Uh, would that, be so that, that, would be, that would be somewhat accurate to say. So demonic possession, there's different levels of demonic activity in a person's life. Demonic possession is the most extreme level. And just by... Sure. You know, reason of cases, caseloads, things that we've studied, you know, talking with other with exorcists, with deliverance ministers, that level of demonic activity is the most severe and, and the most rare um, to actually happen. But demonic oppression, demonic infestation, demons being introduced to your life, which is the most common um, that we see today, um, those things happen where sin has existed. So let's take, for example, uh, a haunted house, for example, a place that has demonic infestation. If there was a murder in the past there, if there was any type of witchcraft or occult activity there that opened doors to demonic spirits, demons can come and inhabit that place and demonize or infest that particular area. And when a person moves into that house, they're dealing with something, a sin of the past that took place on that ground and they have to cleanse the ground. Whereas somebody on an individual level, let's say you or I were involved with the occult, you know, practicing uh, seances or playing with a Ouija board or uh, tarot cards is a big one. All these things, divination, we did these things at, at some point in our life. We might not necessarily have it manifest, a demonic spirit take advantage of what I call a demonic option there in our lives until 10 years down the road, which I wrote about that in the book with the, uh, the first investigation I ever went on um, in here. Uh, a case in South Carolina where a woman played with a Ouija board 10 years past, and then she was experiencing demonic infestation in their home uh, 10 years later. So demons will look at that sin, and the more we sin, the more we cultivate that fruit of sin in our lives, and the more a, dem a demon is attracted to that particular sin in our life. Um, as you well know, we're all susceptible as fallen creatures to specific sins. So so, for example, men might be more susceptible to sexual sins than women, but women might be more susceptible to anything doing with, you know, hate or um, what Yeshua calls murder, even though it's not physical murder. If you hate somebody, your heart is murder. Women might deal with more of that type of thing because they're more predispositions toward those things. But every one of us have specific things that our flesh is attracted to, specific sins, and like fruit, I mean, certain certain people want an orange, certain people want an apple. Demons go after a specific type of fruit. A spirit of lust will go after 
uh, somebody that is addicted to pornography. A spirit of murder might go after somebody that has hate in their heart, uh, so on and so forth. A Jezebel spirit might go after sure. somebody, for example, uh, that is very controlling and manipulative. Very good. Uh, so basically, uh, what we do with our choices with morality and immorality uh, ultimately will give legal ground uh, to these things if we're not careful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So everything, every action we do, every thought we have, if we don't take it captive to the word of God, every action that we do can produce a legal right for a demon to stay in your life. So some people, let's, let's take this example, are born again, but they have areas of their life that's not completely yielded over to Holy Spirit. And they might even have areas in their life where they harbor unforgiveness. And in that unforgiveness, that is an unconfessed area, a sin, a choice to not forgive somebody that a demon can latch onto and cause havoc, even in a Christian's life, if they don't have that area surrendered to God, if they don't release forgiveness. I'm so happy that you mentioned that because that's what I've told people before. And I wish uh, I would have might have said it more eloquent like you have. But uh, to a certain degree, it's basically you can be born again right then and there. But then there could be some legal grounds that you have to uh, basically rebuke and also be delivered from. Would that be accurate to say? In your Absolutely. Opinion? Yes. Uh, so I really appreciate you confirming that because that's what I've told people. I can go on my personal uh, testimony as well is that once you accept the Lord as your Savior, you're born again right then and there. However, you know, if there's been some open doors uh, with some things, you do have to be delivered from those things. Absolutely. So demons set up strongholds in people's lives. And one of the biggest strongholds that I see has to do with addictions. You can be addicted to many things. People can be addicted to gambling. They can be addicted to nicotine, uh, smoking cigarettes, addicted to alcohol, uh, being alcoholic, addicted to pornography. You know, there's all kinds of different addictions that people have and demons love to create strongholds in an addiction. So even if you're born again, you know, you, you, you lead a, an alcoholic to Christ, that addiction still remains. And there can still be a demonic stronghold within that addiction. And you have to break that addiction, break that stronghold down in order to have that person freed from that addiction. Uh, but just uh, in your book, uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, in your book, uh, you were written in uh, the lessons in experience, and we you're talking about these open doorways, these open gateways that we're discussing right now. Uh, how imperative uh, is it like there's regular sin uh, that we're all tempted with, which we've discussed with maybe it's lust or maybe it's gossip, maybe it's alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be. But then there's these things with the occult, you know, with the witchcraft, with the sorcery. Could you explain, is there a difference in those two with the open doors and open gateways and to what magnitude would be the difference? So that's a good question. So witchcraft, there's many different things that fall within the category of just the blanket term witchcraft. So first off, we have the Greek word pharmakia, and that has to do with drugs. Um, that's drug abuse. You know, again, that goes back to that addiction key. A lot of people are addicted to heroin, addicted to cocaine, addicted to these drugs. But anytime you use drugs, you create a demonic option that a demon can use to gain access into your life, whether you're an addict to it or not. The book of Samuel, first Samuel, I believe it says that the sin of rebellion is the same as the rebellion is the same as the sin of witchcraft. So are you a particularly rebellious person? Witchcraft spirit can have access to your life. Well, wow. rebellion against parents, rebellion against authority. See, the Bible says that God has placed authority over us, even government authority. So, so for me personally, I wasn't necessarily somebody fond of President Obama, but I didn't try to circumvent his authority. I might have disagreed with some things he did or said, but I never was out trying to overthrow the man. How many people can say that about President Trump today, even within the Republican Party, that people aren't out to overthrow the man? You know, you're seeing a manifestation of rebellion on a national scale right now, which is a manifestation of the spirit of witchcraft within society and politics, mm -hmm. even within the church. It's how many people try to circumvent the headship of pastors in churches today? See, the spirit of witchcraft is one that's extremely prevalent. And that's not necessarily people performing incantations or using a Ouija board with divination or anything like that. It's a rebellion right. at the heart of, of, of people that are creating this. 
But then you have the occult side of things where you have a witch that's actually working with a familiar spirit um, to place curses on people or, you know, they have white witches and black witches. Uh, it depends on they term those two different ways based on what their purpose, their intentions are with the witchcraft. But they're all from the same root. It's all demonic. Um, you have them that do sorcery, that conduct seances to speak with the dead. So you have that mystical side of witchcraft, and then you have the other side of witchcraft, which I talked about with drugs and rebellion. They're all the same spirit. They're all from the same root, but there's different outlets for the same manifestation of things. Uh, very good. Uh, you mentioned uh, exorcism uh, here before in one of our previous comments. And uh, could you, we've spoken about deliverance and basically when you're born again, if you will, if there's some open gates, open doors that needed to be uh, closed and obviously loosened from uh, that person, uh, that's deliverance. Um, could you explain the difference in deliverance and exorcism? Yeah, absolutely. So on a grand scale, if you look at the big picture, Protestants do not practice exorcism per se, the Roman rite of exorcism. That is done by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, exorcists are typically recommended to a case from the Catholic perspective after they've exhausted all medical, psychological, or physiological explanations for an issue. And there's nothing but supernatural uh, events taking places to convince the Catholic Church or a bishop in the Catholic Church to permit an exorcism to take place. Now there's different signs of possessions that they look for. So just a couple examples are supernatural strength. I've actually witnessed this myself. It's pretty incredible to see um, speaking in an unknown language that there's no possibility the person could learn. And the day and age we live in today, there's possibilities galore on how a person can know a particular language. So that one's generally takes quite a bit of convincing um, to validate that. Um, so knowledge of things that they couldn't possibly know. Uh, so for example, what they would do is say, you know, just a, a person that's possessed would say something that uh, about something that's happening a hundred miles away at that particular moment in time. And it's later confirmed to be hidden knowledge that they wouldn't have known. Um, repulsion towards anything that's sacred, you know, the Catholic church, they believe that the, you know, different effigies of Mary and different uh, pictures of the saints and you know, the, the cross and holy water. These things are things that they consider sacred. And so a, a reaction to those sacred things um, would indicate a presence. So, for example, they would take a normal glass of water and a glass that has holy water in it and see which one makes this person who's possessed respond. So exorcism is dealing with that small segment of the population that actually might be fully possessed by a demonic spirit. Deliverance, on the other hand, if we're looking at that, is a Protestant ministry that deals with everything leading up to possession typically. Now, they still deal with people that are fully possessed. Again, this is the Protestant side. But most of the time, they're able to intervene in uh, different uh, demonic haunts. So if your house has dealing with, with things, um, infestation is what it's called. They would come in and be involved there to exercise or get rid of the spirit. Dealing with demonic oppression, um, people that are on the verge of possession, uh, people that are being tormented in their minds through dreams, through nagging thoughts, tormenting thoughts, um, being scratched, pushed down steps, physical things happening. They can be there to deal with that. Uh, but a deliverance minister also studies demonology from the position that I take uh, as on a religious side. I believe that the church today really could uh, benefit from having people, even within individual congregations, who are practiced and knowledgeable in deliverance ministry. So if you can get people before they're fully possessed, then you've, <laughs> you've done a lot. Again, that's just a lot to, to help a person. Um, but yeah, that's breaking down basically the differences there. 
Sure. Uh, as we transition into what uh, really the name of the book is with The Haunting of America, and we're with my friend uh, Christopher Anderson uh, on his book, uh, could we speak about the demonization of a nation and really how it pertains to America uh, with what the book is written about? Yeah, absolutely. So demonization of a nation, I look at that concept and I said, you know, again, with the tools of a demonologist and said, this things can happen in individuals. Let's look at it on a national scale. So we read in the book of Daniel about spirits that were over Persia and Greece. And, uh, and, and so we have a biblical precedent for nations to be demonized. Now, that doesn't mean possessed. Again, demonized means a demon is influencing a nation. So if we look at the three structures or pillars of society, the religion, culture and our religion, society and uh, politics, and we see that religion should be the moral compass of a nation. First and foremost, religious structure should be teaching morality, demonstrating morality and and teaching morality in any way, shape or form. Society, therefore, learns from the religious side how to live morally and righteously. And then as a result, society elects in, in this particular type of government we live in here in the state, politicians who would reflect the values of society, which should be values established by the moral tenets of the, of the church. So if people are demonized and possessed, if they're oppressed at all different levels and stages of demonic activity in a person's life, then what about a political leader who makes rules and regulations and establishes laws for a nation to follow so I see that demonization of, Amer of, of a nation, a haunting of America, for example, occurs when you have political leaders who are making laws contrary to righteousness, contrary to godliness, that are operating under the sway or influence of demonic spirits, principalities uh, in this particular example, extremely strong spirits. Um, and the society is not doing anything about it and the church isn't doing anything about it. I think that's the key part is what's happening with these political leaders is the moral compass of a nation speaking up is society speaking up. Is there any type of, of conflict going on there? And here in America, for example, we see that there is. So in ancient times, ancient Persia, ancient Greece, you know, these spirits, that were over those nations that were hindering the angel from bringing Daniel's answer to him at the prayer that he was praying. They contended with those things, but there was no resistance. Again, all these different religions of the world are simply worshiping demons. So there is no division within the demonic kingdoms in those nations here in the States. There is. So we see the conflict now where we have a segment of the church standing up and saying, Hey, this is wrong. We got a segment of society, which actually we're seeing society clash quite a bit today between left and right. But you're seeing that segment of society standing up and saying this is wrong. This goes against the, the tenets of our founding documents, the uh, Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, uh, Bill of Rights. And then we see in the political world, both segments left and right, both wings of politics at each other's throats. And it's all over, you know, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. So we see in America that we do have, you know, every four to eight years, a presidency that changes hands or every two years where you see um, Congress and Senate change, potentially uh, governors change. We see the ebb and flow of what is influencing a nation uh, through those elections, uh, whether it's things that they're being laws being passed or godly or ungodly, moral or moral. Um, so that's kind of a nutshell. Uh, really the title there. Yes. Yeah, I think it's very important for uh, all of us to understand about uh, the spirits that do affect us and the open gates or the open doors and how much stock do you put into? I know you're probably aware of how the uh, the bell arches have come upon American soil and then set up, I believe, in New York City and also in Washington, D.C., I think 
uh, the goddess of war, Athena, has been erected as well. Uh, when you look at New York City, uh, it used to be crosses back in the 1950s on the, on, on the buildings. Now they have these images of these demonic images on the uh, skyscrapers. How much stock do you put into uh, the land being uh, desecrated, if you will, with the uh, bell arches? And so I actually put quite a bit of stock in that. Uh, it was maybe a week or two back that I actually took a picture of the, of the archway of bail that was erected. I believe the one that I took um, picture I took was from Washington, DC. And I put on there that, you know, we we're erecting these ancient structures to these demon spirits in the heart of our land, the political center of America in Washington, DC, the financial center of America in New York city. And we wonder why we struggle the way we're struggling when we have these things happen. Our nation was founded upon, again, the Judeo-Christian value system to be a, a land of the free and home of the brave where religious freedom can uh, take place. But even within that context, of religious freedom, we were a Christian nation. It was, I think, in 2014 when President Obama at the time said that we're no longer a Christian nation, but a nation of many religions is what he said. And since that time is when you see, again, these arches of Baal, which those went up in 2016. Um you see all these different pagan imagery starting to come up all across the different uh, judicial buildings in Washington, D.C. And even anywhere you go uh, in any state capital, you'll see images of different gods and goddesses, Roman gods and goddesses that are on the uh, buildings. And like you said, at one time it wasn't like that, but now it is. Why? It's, a, it's an increasing encroachment of demonic spirits within American society that's putting these things on there. Um, so I, I see a, a, a great correlation between the increase in that stuff happening and the increase in political and social upheaval and the increased silencing of the body of Christ, the moral compass in the United States. You wrote in your book, uh, which was very paramount to me when uh, I started digging deeper and deeper into your book, chapter after chapter, uh, you did a great job of layering uh, these things on. And that really, with what we're just speaking of about America and the foundation of America and how we have allowed certain gates to be open and doors to be open, and it just seems like it's continuing to manifest higher and higher uh, with the demonic ram, uh, it gets us into uh, what most people are familiar with, the Jezebel spirit. Uh, could you uh, you did a great job of uh, relating it back to the uh, the woman Jezebel with King Ahab, but also the spirit of Jezebel as well. Uh, could we get into that with the spirit of Jezebel that's really uh, involved in America right now, and also the bell worship that we've seen and correlate those two together? Absolutely. Like you so in your book, a lot of times people hear the the term Jezebel spirit and they think of the woman Jezebel, and that's that's not really the case. See, the spirit takes on the trait of Jezebel, and then, well, rather, Jezebel has the trait of the spirit, if you want to put it that way. Um, but people associate the particular traits manifested in the woman Jezebel with the Jezebel spirit. Um, so I thought it was important in the book to read about Jezebel herself and see what scripture had to reveal about Jezebel, and then reveal about the spirit that has those traits that people today refer to as the spirit of Jezebel. And one of the, the key parts of all of that that I found in my research that I don't think anybody has hit on, to the best of my knowledge, is that Jezebel was just a gatekeeper. So people see Jezebel's spirit in America as like the dominant spirit that's, that's infesting the West. Now, what I say is that is true. However, Jezebel was the gatekeeper to Baal. So... Wow. Where Jezebel's spirit is manifest, the attempt to open the gateway to Baal is present. So if we look at society and we see that the Jezebel spirit at work within American culture through the counterculture movement of the 1960s, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. We see that spirit of Jezebel, that spirit of rebellion, the spirit of haughtiness, the spirit of um, sexual revolution, which is a huge part of what Jezebel represents. We see the result of that in 1973, Road versus Wade, with the legalization of abortion, which gets rid of the results, or the consequences of the sexual revolution, which is unintended pregnancy. 
And in such, we see one facet of Baal worship taking place, which is the sacrificing of children. Now, to date, there's been, if I'm not mistaken, over or right around or over 80 million babies aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1973. So we have an ocean of blood on our hands as a result of this Jezebel spirit in the 1960s, the counterculture uh, movement, the sexual revolution that took place in society and the consequences of that being literally sacrificed on the altars of Baal. And as we've gone down through the decades, we see the rise in America of various sexually transmitted diseases, which is again, a result, a consequence of the sexual revolution. And then we begin to see things like the archway of Baal erected in 2016 in our center of politics and our center of economics, Washington, D.C. and New York City. The literal temple of Baal arches, archways, the replica of those put up. And the connection there to me is uncanny because Jezebel is the, the, the gatekeeper to Baal. And so now we see a physical manifestation of the temple of Baal in two dominant cities in our country. You know, how can we not sit back and say there's something going on here deeper? It's more than just a Jezebel spirit. It's a Baal spirit, too. So throughout history, Baal has wow. been um, in one way, shape or form correlated even with Satan himself, with Lucifer himself. So I mean, we see the different uh, secret societies in America, Freemasons. We see the Order of the Eastern Star, whose symbol is an upside down star with multiple colors on it. It's, it's hearkening both to the inverted pentagram of Satanism, as well as the five spirits and deities of Wicca in that same symbol. Uh, with the Order of Eastern Stars. Um, we see all kinds of these secret societies out there who's who's worshiping Satan. Even here recently, we have the revolution of, uh, they calling it Pizzagate and Pedophile Gate, uh, of all these billionaires and millionaires throughout politics, business, Hollywood, involved with gross pedophilia and child sacrifice. Those are all mm -hmm. things... Both of those things, pedophilia and child sacrifice, are bail practices. They are bail worship rites. So we're seeing that manifested. Uh, yes, when I was reading this chapter, I thought it was just amazing how you tied both of those together because Jezebel is the gateway, and then that leads into the bell worship, if I'm uh, reading you correctly, hearing you correctly with that. And I thought it was uh, amazing that how you tied that in because that's exactly correct. Uh, all the listeners and all of us need to understand that bell worship was here uh, before the person Jezebel, okay, and then obviously that translates into the spirit, etc. But I thought it was amazing how you tied those two together as the gateway to open up all of these things that Satan really wants done uh, once the sex, drugs, rock and roll, the counterculture, all of these things that you've mentioned. Now here you go with the abortions. Now here you go with the idols, uh, with the bell arches, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as And that leads us into what I think would be a good uh, encore, if you will, to uh, tie all these things in together with the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, we've mentioned the bell. We've mentioned the Jezebel spirit and how they tie in together. Uh, what are you seeing with America with that spirit of the Antichrist, uh, so to speak? So the, the Antichrist spirit is, I believe, fully the Islamic worship system. It's so... Anything that denies the deity of Jesus, that denies that he is the son of God, anything that does those two things is a definition of the Antichrist spirit. As we read to find um, that the Apostle John told us to look for. So within the body of Christ, we have a couple of different doctrines that I talk about that are easily defined as antichristic doctrines. First off being universalism specifically Christian universalism, which teaches that hell is one of two things. Either hell is the condition of the fallen world we live in today is defined by sickness, war, disease, things of that nature, poverty, uh, starvation. And then the second concept is that hell is a temporary place of punishment 
but that we are all eventually taken out of hell into heaven. And so Christian universalism teaches those two particular doctrines regarding hell. Regarding Christ, they teach that Jesus died on the cross and that his salvific work applies to everybody, regardless of whether or not you personally believe in Jesus or not. So according to Christian universalists, I can be I can be a jihadist right now, somebody that radically follows Muhammad and Allah, and I can go and be on a holy crusade, the jihad, and I could be killing people as a as a as an offering to Allah. And if I die in that jihad or if I die anytime, then I would go to heaven, which is not scriptural. And so they deny the deity of Christ in that they deny the exclusivity of Christ. So Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. And so in so teaching Christian universalists take away that scripture completely and say that any way is the way to God. Or even if you're an atheist and you have no religious belief whatsoever, it doesn't matter because you will go to heaven. And so they deny the very basic foundational tenets of the gospel message that those who are saved are those who believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. So Christian universalism, as defined as such, and I go into more in the book, is a form of antichrist doctrine in the church. The next one I talk about is Chrislam, which is a blending of Christianity and Islam. And I look in the book and I show the difference between Allah and Yahweh. And how these are not the same deities. And then I go and talk about how the view of Christ in Islam and the view of Christ in Christianity are completely in opposition to one another. And that you cannot marry the two religions together. They are clearly, distinguishably two separate religious systems. And adherence to such doctrine is an abomination to the gospel message. And as a result, they deny that Christ is the son of God, if they're following the Islamic side of it, because that's what Islam does. They deny that God has a son. They deny that Christ died on the cross because Islam believes that he didn't die on the cross, but that he was replaced on the cross by another and he was taken to heaven. And so they deny the death of Christ and they deny the resurrection of Christ because Islam says he's still in the grave. And in so doing, it is anti-Christic doctrine. And then we have Islam as a whole, which I, again, as I mentioned before, I feel this is the Antichrist religion, the, anti, the, the epitome of Antichrist spirit, because Islam rejects and denies Christ as the son of God. They deny him as having died on the cross. They deny his resurrection. They deny all the critical pieces of what defines one who is born again and what we have to believe in to be born again. And therefore, they deny the gospel in its entirety. Right, and I totally agree with you on the Islamic uh, viewpoints of uh, what we call holy, they call unholy. You know, and that's really uh, the difference is the things that we treasure is the holiness, the Trinity, uh, that he was crucified and resurrected. They deny that. And actually, it's the only religion that defiantly goes strictly against uh, the Judeo-Christian values that we have. It's totally opposite, just like you've said. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely on the same page as I know most of the listeners that keep up with our ministry, uh, they're on the Islam you know, bandwagon as well, as far as it being the Antichrist religion. And I almost look at the Chrislam uh, thing, especially uh, with how Islam's in America is trying to get a foothold into our churches. And it's almost like a combination uh, for a while. And then they're going to give you the full Islamic doctrine once uh, all of or some of the believers, uh, if you will, are fooled uh, with the Chrislam thing. Then it goes into full-blown Islam. And I can personally see that uh, catching ground uh, in America, in our Congress, also in our education system, uh, open borders, etc. You can definitely see how Islam Islam's really uh, putting their footprint uh, on America more than ever. Absolutely. Um, as we look at um, 
America, when you look at the church within America and our responsibilities, uh, you mentioned something that was very interesting to me, and I'm so happy that you hit on this topic uh, in your book uh, when you went through all of these critical points and critical chapters. Uh, you speak of discipleship, something that I personally feel has been lost uh, within the church, and part of the reason I feel like we're in the position that we're in right now, not to mention all of the other things with the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit and also engaging in the spiritual warfare, uh, like you've discussed, uh, but could you uh, hit on the topic of discipleship and the critical importance uh, of it within the church, especially in the times that we're living in? Absolutely. So the Western church today, especially in America, functions as a corporation. The pastors function as CEOs who all the decisions tend to go through them and they filter what they want to see happen within the church. And that's that. And the people within the congregation you know, function as people that simply support the CEO. And that's not the way the church is supposed to function. The, the church is supposed to be a living organism. So a part of that living organism that's necessary is growth. It's hard to grow in a corporation when there's not very many promotions that you can take. If you look at it in a corporate world, in a corporate structure, I mean, there, there's only so much you can do if you're an hourly worker. There's only so far you can go without a specific degree as a salaried worker, you know, and, and I see the church functioning very much like that. But that's, again, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be training people and teaching them, discipling them. Jesus didn't say go out and make converts at the Great Commission. He said, go out and make disciples of the nation. What does that mean? He said, teach them the things that I teach you. So what does that mean? Jesus taught the disciples how to operate in the supernatural gifts that are given through Holy Spirit. He taught them how to operate in his authority. When we see in scripture that Jesus sent the disciples out, they sent the 70 out and they came back and saying they were excited and said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Their names are written in heaven. So. The disciples knew how to operate, one, in authority, and then two, in Holy Spirit empowerment, we see after Acts chapter 2. And they knew how to operate in both of those outlets. Today, the body of Christ today, if I were to go and just randomly pick, I can close my eyes and point at somebody in my church and say, Hey, Susie, how do you operate in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, of Yeshua HaMashiach? And they would have no idea what to do. And that's just working in the authority, not empowerment. If I go into these charismatic circles today and I say, hey, Joe, how do you operate in the empowerment of Holy Spirit? Would he be able to answer me? The likelihood of getting an answer would be 50-50. Why? Because nobody's teaching and training people how to operate in the authority of the name of Christ and how to operate in the gifts and the empowerment of Holy Spirit. And as a result, we, we are a mass army. The body of Christ is an army sitting on a nuclear warhead and have no idea how to use it. We're saying, well, we have the power of Christ. We have the authority of Christ, the power of Holy Spirit. Okay, show me how to use it. It's like going in battle and saying, I have a nuclear weapon right here, but I don't know how to use it. So what do I do? That's, that's the, kind of the way I equate it to. And so the body of Christ today, without proper discipleship, we're, we're sitting on power. We have no idea how to use and we're not even tapping into it to begin to use it. People go to church and they think that their Sunday service is to show up there, put a smile on their face, shake a few hands, sing a few songs and listen to the scripture. And they go about the rest of the week doing what they want. And that's not the point of church. The church is supposed to be where we come. It should be a field hospital to some who go there who need to be healed spiritually, physically. If somebody comes to church and they have a cast on their arm, you should be praying for them that Yeshua would heal them through the through the power of Holy Spirit. I've seen it happen. I've seen broken bones mended. If somebody comes in there and they, they are they're blind, they can't see. We should be going laying hands on them and praying for them until they're healed. I've seen this happen. Amen. Why aren't we doing that in the church today? Because not even the pastors. God bless them. Not even the pastors and leaders in our churches know how to operate in the authority of the name of Christ or in the empowerment of Holy Spirit because we're too busy sipping our lattes and having our, our, our psychological lessons taught on how to be a good neighbor and things. And that is certainly important. I don't want to take away from that. We should know how to treat everybody nice. We should know how to walk in, in good fellowship with our neighbors and do that. That's important to love each other. But what about 
everything else. We're so focused on one and we completely missing out on the other. So we have to begin to do that and walk in that power and authority of Jesus Christ. And that happens with individual discipleship. Amen. It all goes back into the Great Commission. And I love what you wrote in your book. And and I'd like to quote this. It says, it is time for the church to once again walk in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, clothed in the authority Jesus gave with the Great Commission. Uh, very well said. It's something that uh, is on my heart near and dear, and obviously yours as well, that it's just the time to go. It's time with the times that we're living in. Uh, like you said, it's time to get engaged within the Great Commission, within what he said in the Great Commission, and use the the Holy Spirit, because I believe as you closed your book with a chapter called The Supernatural, you know, it was very interesting to me because you've seen, you've witnessed all these things that Messiah himself said that you can do these things greater than I can. You will do you will do things greater than me if you believe as a mustard seed and if you uh, go about in the supernatural way of the Holy Spirit. Could you hit on that? Because uh, I really uh, enjoyed a lot of the personal testimonies that you gave as far as your witnessing this. And and I believe we can all take encouragement and inspiration uh, from the things that you've written in your book. Could you go into a few of those things, please? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the faith it takes to lay hands on the sick and see them healed, to cast out demons, to see miracles, is the same type of faith it takes you to be born again. It's that mustard seed faith. All you got to do is say, Jesus said it, I have it written down in the word of God, and I'm going to believe it. A lot of people get frustrated. They go and they pray for somebody for healing, and they don't see something happen immediately. And what do they do? They'll say, well, God must not want you to be healed. And what they do when saying that, they rip that seed out of that person's heart, that seed of faith that's planted. They rip it out, and the person won't get healed because the person praying, instead of believing in faith and leaving a person in faith, they rip out that seed of faith. So they stop praying for people. They stopped, they stopped caring. But if I had stopped praying for people for healing, I would have never seen somebody healed. Now, I can say I prayed for a couple of years before I start seeing people healed in the name of Jesus. Now, you take two or three years of praying for somebody and not seeing what you're asking the Lord to show you, it can hit your faith pretty hard. It can make you feel bad. You can say, what, what did I do? You know, the devil will play tricks on your head. He'll, he'll tell you stuff that's just not true if you allow that to happen. But I eventually began to see miracles. I began to see things happen. I've seen people's legs grow out, uh, kids even. Um, I began to to see all this stuff. And then as I begin to see miracles, when I pray for people, when I see blind eyes healed, broken bones mended, um, seeing people just pains in their necks and their, and their bodies, neck pains, uh, just stiffness, things go in Jesus' name. I began to hear those words in my head that Jesus said, freely you've given or freely you've received, freely give. And I thought it would be selfish of me. It would be self-centered of me and it would be ungodly of me to not teach somebody else how to do this, to not disciple somebody else in, in this, in this, in this amazing work of God. Because if God can do this through somebody like me, I'm nobody. If God can do it through somebody like me, he can do it through anybody. And so the story, one of the, the stories that I put in the book, a couple of those are dealing with a guy that I worked with. Now, I'll tell you the one that I like the most was dealing with a treasure hunt is what I called it. So a treasure hunt, just to briefly talk about what that is, is when we ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to show us a particular clue about somebody he wants us to talk to. Whatever that may be, we write it down on a piece of paper and we go from there and then we just go out and we find that person, their treasure. And so this young fellow that I worked with, he was a Christian, he was a Baptist, so he didn't really believe very much into these the more supernatural side of things. But that's okay. He's still a son of God. And so, you know, we, I've been talking with them and there's some other stuff that happened that I wrote about in the book prior to this treasure hunt, uh, dealing with angels and being touched by an angel multiple times. Um, and I asked him, I said, hey, you want to go on treasure hunt? It was good in lunchtime. We wanted to go out to eat. And so I explained to him what a treasure hunt was. He agreed to it. And so we both prayed, took about five minutes and wrote down some stuff that the Lord showed us. Uh, for me, it was a red shirt, blue jean shorts and white shoes. That's all I knew. 
And I was, we're trying to figure out where we're going to go eat. Right. So all I got was this. And so I was like, man, I sure hope the Lord showed him where he's going to, where we're going to go eat because I have no idea. And uh, sure enough, he uh, didn't reveal to my friend where, where we were going to go eat. So there we were stuck back at square one, trying to figure out where we're going to go eat. And we're just now getting ready to get on that one hour lunch break. So we're on the clock now. And so we just decided to take off. I, I think we were headed to Arby's because I thought to myself, you know, Arby's is pretty good. Why not? Uh, so as we were headed to Arby's, we uh, happened to pass IHOP on the way. And we just decided to swing into IHOP just spur of the moment. It wasn't even planned. It was, hey, that IHOP, let's go. So we went to IHOP and I started looking around. I didn't find my treasure. And my buddy Joe was looking around. He didn't find his treasure either. So we ordered our meal. Keep on looking around. We're eating. Both of us are Marines or prior Marines, so we eat pretty quick. But we still just kept on talking and talking about the Lord and just talking about work and different things. Treasure wasn't anywhere to be found. And so the waitress comes back to, you know, make sure we're, we're good to go and, and give us our bill. And I told uh, told my buddy, I said, let's just talk to her. Let's see if she uh, how she's doing it, if we can just pray for her and nothing specific. Let's just pray that God blesses her and just love on her. And so she came back and uh, I asked her if it was OK to pray with her. And she agreed. So we prayed and the woman started getting tears in her eyes. And you can tell that that Lord is really moving on her. And, um, you know, we finished praying. Uh, she gave us the bill. She she went back to the back. She thanked us for a prayer. And then she comes back and she said, hey, do you guys mind praying for that gentleman that's in the seat over across the way? And she pointed to a an older guy. She said that he had recently lost his wife. Uh, her, his wife had passed and he had. He was a regular there, but now he's coming more often and that he seems very depressed and really needs prayer. So I, I told her that we would love to, uh, but I wanted her to, to make the introductions. I didn't just want to go pop in um, with a man grieving. I wanted to be sensitive to that. And so she went over there and asked him and, and he allowed us to come over and pray for them. On our way over, we noticed that he had a Korean War veteran hat on. And I'm a, I'm a veteran of Afghanistan and my buddy, he hadn't deployed yet, but he was a Marine uh, veteran. He's he was in reserves at the time. So we had stuff to talk about, about military life, about deployments and everything. And so we were able to make a relationship with him, establish a connection through the military right there. And then we talked briefly about that. Then we just talked to him about his wife and uh, he, he was getting really upset and his tears were getting in his eyes and things. And uh, so we wanted to pray for him just for God to comfort him. And so my buddy this time, the Baptist, who was very shy about praying for people, he, he, he was the first one up. He, he jumped in there and started praying. And then I followed him up in prayer. And this man was, you can see visibly the burden on his shoulders start to lift. And uh, he, he, we left, went back to our seat and kept, he kept drinking his coffee. But you can tell there is a, there is a atmospheric shift and people that have operated in Holy spirit and things can know what I'm saying and understand that the atmospheric shift. But we felt that shift with him and, um, just over the restaurant as a whole, something felt different. So we got back to our seat and I looked up and there was my treasure sitting across from us. It was wow. a woman. She had a red shirt, blue jean shorts and white tennis shoes. And they, she had a whole big family there, probably 10 of them eating or so. And, uh, so I grabbed my buddy. I said, Hey, look, there's my treasure. And then I, then I showed him the clues, what the Lord had shown me. I hadn't showed him prior to this, what the Lord showed me. Cause I wanted it to be a surprise for him. Cause again, I'm trying to disciple the man. And how to pray for people in public, you know, as the Lord leads and just trying to get over being shy. And I finally showed him the treasure. I said, here it is. And his eyes got real big. He was real amazed about that. And so we waited till that family left or went to pay the bill, got up to pay the bill. And then we we got up and met him. And I approached the lady. I said, hey, you know, this is what's happened. God showed me you. And here's the here's what I wrote an hour ago. This is what you got on and you're the treasure God sent me here to search for. Um, can I pray with you? And I began to pray with her. I forget what all it was. It's, it's been a few years now. Um, she had some pains and a few other little various things going on that she needed prayer for um, with her family and all that. So as I started to pray for her, my buddy started praying for other people, the rest of the people in her family. And so after he got done praying with people, people that were with her family, as people were coming in the door, he was just asking them, hey, can I pray with you? And he started praying. <laughs> so I, when we left there, it was an hour lunch break. We had prayed for over half of the people in that restaurant. Wow. Because he got boldness in him after seeing the Lord move and seeing how 
sharing the love of God. And again, the, the whole point of this was let's go share the love of God in Christ Jesus with people. If God performs miracles, so be it. If God does not perform a miracle, so be it. It's not my job to bring forth the miracle. It's my job to be obedient to Holy Spirit. And God tells Amen. us to love one another. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he said, loving, the, the principle of love is the, the entirety of all the commandments. And so we just wanted to love people. And such an amazing thing happened. I, I don't think I've ever prayed for half a restaurant before. And I <laughs> on rush hour lunch break. And me and my buddy did that. So, again, that goes to <laughs> obeying God, doing what he says. The word of God says it. We're going to do it. I don't need a special revelation of the, the Lord through a Rima word given to me to go out and do this. I need to go out and do it because the logo says to do it. The written word says to do this, to love people. And so I'm going to love on people, whether I'm at my lunch break, whether I'm at the gas station, whether I'm at Walmart, whether I'm at work, no matter where I'm at. The people around me are now in my sphere of influence and I can love on them by showing them a smile, by buying their lunch for them, by just being a listening ear and telling them that Jesus loves them. So. Amen. Amen. What a great inspirational story and great testimony, man. Hallelujah. As we look forward and uh, in your opinion, when you look forward in America and you're seeing uh, what we're witnessing right now with the, just a manifestation of all these spirits and all these different, as you call it, the Chrislam and the universalism and also the Archibalds and all of these manifestate the Jezebel spirit uh, that's very active in America. My friend, where do we go from here? Uh, what what do we do with all of the information that we have that you've written in the book? Uh, where do we go from here? I actually think that's a pretty simple answer. Uh, I'll be all honest with you. And people look at the problem and they see the problem as such a monumental thing to be overcome. But it comes down to this. Obey the Lord. Period. How do we do it? We don't need a special revelation. As I just said, you have the word of God, the written word, the logos, the words of Yeshua, the words of the prophets. We have it all right here. The Bible tells us how to be godly. The Bible tells us how to live righteously. The Bible tells us how to interact with our family, how to interact with our neighbors, the people in our sphere of influence. The Bible tells us how to worship God, how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants to be loved. And it all boils down to what Yeshua said, love one another as I have loved you. That's it. So if the church, the body of Christ, if each individual Christian, each individual son and daughter of God took it upon themselves to say, today I am going to share and show the love of Christ Jesus to at least one person. Somebody that can't do anything for me. Somebody that can't benefit me in some way, shape, or form. You take the pride out of it. You, you take the selfishness out of it. You say, I'm going to bless somebody that has no ability to bless me back. And you just you just love on them. You demonstrate something. You buy them lunch. You buy them their groceries. You, you get their gas for them. You, you become a listening ear to them. You just strike up a conversation with somebody. Just show people love. And I promise you... If everybody would start doing that at least once a day, that'll quickly become two a day. That'll quickly become three a day because it's contagious. Love is contagious. When you show the love of Christ to somebody else, it brings such a joy to your heart that you can't explain it. It's the most joyful thing you can feel this side of heaven. And it will be something that you will just want to keep doing. And that one will become two, two be three, three to four, four to five. And it's going to have a ripple effect throughout society. And again, if the church is the moral compass and we're showing people true love, true Christ-like love, then the society can change. When society changes, then politics can change. It all goes back to love. Amen. Very well said. Uh, could you give the listeners a way to uh, how to get your book, how to purchase your book, and also how to get in touch with you if they have any questions or concerns uh, about the topic? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, the book, actually both, I have three books total. Uh, my first book's no longer in print, unfortunately, but both uh, Awaken Arise and Haunting of America are available on Amazon. So you can get them there. 
Uh, you can go to Life Rich Publishing to get Awaken Arise and uh, Westbo Press to get, um, I'm sorry, Westbo Press to get Awaken Arise and Life Rich Publishing to get Haunting of America. Again, it's easier just to go to Amazon to get both of them. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can send me an email at bootcampministries at gmail.com or you can email me at anderson at endtime.church. And I would love to talk to anybody, have any questions. You know, I, I'd love to hear from you and love to interact with you. That sounds great. Uh, friends, we've been with uh, my friend Christopher Anderson and speaking of his book, Haunting of America, a Denom uh, demonologist take on American spirits. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, read this book, to purchase it, to support Chris uh, in this book. Uh, I've read it personally and I've received a lot of uh, inspiration out of it and understanding of it on the points that he's mentioning. But we are at an interesting time as far as where we are in America with dealing with some of the spirits that we've mentioned and also some of the witchcraft etc and it is time for us to step, step into our supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit like Chris has mentioned do the Great Commission uh, form discipleship all these important things that we've spoken of, that we've spoken of today so I would encourage you to get his book and read it and really spread the news of what we are dealing with at this time so friends I really appreciate you joining us today uh, my name is Chadwick Harvey and you've reached the final threshold all right.